Welcome everybody, everyone wave hi. It's the gratitude episode of Trans Tuesday. We are an online interactive show um, by My Feminine Heart. I am your host, Cassandra Storm. We are a community of sisters, of trans women and cis women supporting each other and largely as much as we can, helping everyone we can through one beautiful episode week after another in the trans community. We have some fantastic ladies in the house. I'm so excited. So this is a jam-packed episode from now through the new year. Every single episode of My Feminine Heart is going to be about just, um, it's going to be total escapism. We're going to be happy and positive. We're going to talk about how to be stress-free and how to survive the holidays. Um, so excited. I want to introduce our beautiful co-hosts, uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Beth, welcome. Uh, she is a cyclist who rides thousands of miles in a day, leads incredible volunteers across the country biking for charities. She is a makeup artist, a transformative, all-in-one like house of everything with makeup, photography, wardrobe. If you've ever wanted to have a transformative makeover experience and photo shoot, she is your gal. And because she um, is like a master of everything, she's also a sommelier and is going to be teaching us um, taking us on this like vacation through the Willamette Valley of Oregon tonight. Beth, welcome. Well, thank you so much for that enthusiastic introduction, Cass. I am so excited to share Oregon wines with you all. Um, so Oregon has a really special place in my heart in terms of wines. Um, a lot of you know that I'm originally from California. I spent two years of my adult life in California. Absolutely love California wines. I was even like on the West Coast for two years and I didn't make it up to Oregon. This is 05, 06, 07. And part of the reason I didn't make it up because California is so fun, but also back in 05 to 07, the Oregon wine industry was not very developed, particularly not the hospitality industry. Um, the Oregon wine industry uh, was founded in around the 1970s. Uh, for comparison, the California wine industry was founded well before the Great Depression, uh, or sorry, the uh, Prohibition. Um, so just to give you a sense of how new the Oregon wine industry is. So back in 05 to 07, I was looking, hey, does Oregon have tasting rooms open? And unlike California, they did not have tasting rooms open at that time that I could find where you could just drop in and just stop by different places. You had to make reservations. So that was kind of this like barrier to entry for Oregon. But come along a decade later and Giselle and I are going out to Oregon. We went out, I think three different years and went out wine tasting in Oregon. Uh, some places that we made reservations, but not because we needed to, to in order to taste wine, but if we wanted a, uh, you know, really premier kind of experience. Uh, you know, just that extra decade has brought Oregon wine industry and wine tourism up so much. And why do I love Oregon wines? Oregon wines to me are the perfect combination of the new world fruit forward kind of style with the old world earthiness in a more accessible package. Uh, so we get the fruitiness, we get the earthiness, we get the minerality, we get the organic earth, but we get the right berries. Uh, and it pairs so beautifully with food. Oregon wines are beautiful enough, easy enough to drink on their own, but they shine with food as well. And so uh, for me, it's just that perfect balance. Also, Oregon wines, they can be more affordable than California wines of a similar quality uh, point. It doesn't mean you're going to find Oregon wines as cheap as California wines, but for a similar quality level, Oregon wines are going to be competitive on price. Um, and part of that has to do with the way that Oregon 
has set up its regulations. Oregon has self-regulated. The wineries came together and they have self-regulated to make their quality standards stricter than that required by the United States of America with um, the ABA system. So for example, if a wine says it's from Oregon, 100% of the grapes are from Oregon. If it says it's a Riesling, if it says it's a Pinot Noir, 95% of that wine, or I think it's 90% actually, is that grape. U.S. regulations, only 75%. So if it says 75% Pinot Noir in California, 75% Pinot Noir, 25%, it could be Zinfandel, it could be Cabernet, it could be Syrah, you don't know. They're not required to tell you. And also um, the Saab AVA, um, also that 90, 95% kind of level of it has to be from that um, region, it says. So it says Eola Amity Hills is from Eola uh, Amity Hills. Um, uh, 95% from that AVA instead of 85% like required in California and the rest of the United States. So very detailed sort of labeling things that give us, when we see Oregon, we know it's going to be quality. Uh, there's uh, the main place that wine is grown in Oregon is in the Willamette Valley. Uh, there's other places as well. There's Columbia Gorge, there's Southern Oregon, and there's way out in Eastern Oregon in this area that borders Washington State in the Walla Walla Valley and the subregion called the Rocks. We're not going there today. Um, there's not any wine distributed that I can find that's actually labeled from that area. And I'm not even sure that's available locally because of the complexity of US wine law. So going back to the Willamette. So I wanna share with you a little bit. Uh, oh, wait, hold on Beth, hold on. I know you're gonna take over our screen um, and you've got like a slideshow and, and you're so prepared. I'm, I'm so excited, I'm totally, when I shared that what we were doing with my husband, he was like, why Oregon? And I just got like 50 reasons why I like, oh my goodness. So for anybody who's watching before Beth keeps going, I just wanted to introduce the rest of our club members and let everybody have a chance to raise a glass. These are our sisters. These are our club members who are joining us and everything that Beth is sharing, she has been preparing us for weeks with a shopping list of like what to buy and what to do. So we're all gonna be sampling some of the wines that she's talking about. So ladies, if you don't mind holding up the wine that you're gonna be drinking tonight. And we've got um, such a beautiful array. If everyone would just like to take a, a quick chance to say hi, we've got Donna, we have Susan Hulse, we've got Renee Mitchell, Linda Ann, Erica Fremont, Jamie Kendall, ladies, thank you. I'm raising a glass to you all. If you want to say hi real quick before we let Beth just take it away again. Oh my goodness. Hi. Hi. Hey, hello. Hello, girls. Hi. Cheers. Hello. I thought we should have an opening toast because I plan on drinking while Beth is teaching. I don't think I can wait until it's my turn to do my tasting. <laughs> oh, you should absolutely be drinking and enjoying this whole time. That's how a traditional wine tasting work works is that you are drinking the whole time, but just usually you taste like five or four to six wines instead of just one or two like you, you are this evening. So please be drinking and enjoying the whole time. <laughs> Good. That's my plan. All right, Beth, you let me know when you're ready for us to go full screen because I know you actually have like some big stuff to show us. I do. I do. So, um, the first thing I'm going to do is show you a video, and this gives you a sense of place of the Willamette Valley. And it's a video actually done by one of the producers of um, Erica's Wine, actually. So it's by A to Z Wine Works. Uh, yes, Erica, I did get your information just because I haven't had the Riesling. I am so familiar with A to Z Wines because the Pinot Gris and the Pinot Noir, Giselle and I used to have that every single weekend for probably two years because it was our go-to house wine. 
um, the A to Z and the Acrobat, amazing value wines that are just delicious. Um, and that's what they're known for. There's some, oh, they have some really cool model that says that. Um, so anyways, I'm gonna go over to share screen and go to that um, video in just a set cast. Okay, I've got you on speaker view too. All right, and so I'm ready whenever you are. It is starting to play. Is it showing? Oops. Let me, I forgot to press share just a second. Almost there. you only have a fleeting time to capture the essence of a vintage, to capture the essence of a place. And there's no other greater variety in the red wine world than Pinot Noir that transmits that sense of place. It's the soil, it's the, it's the sunlight, it's the, it's the vines, it's everything intertwined. Elizabeth, when you muted yourself, you muted the audio. And put that in a bottle. The quality of winemaking is based upon the quality of the fruit. The, the foundation of everything we do, of every bottle of wine we make, rests in the vineyard. Wine's made all around the world. In the United States, wine's made in, in 50 states. So the question is, what makes Oregon special? It's a combination in my mind of three things. The first thing is the soil. You gotta have the right soil to make wine. And, and that's really important. We have world-class grape growing soils here in Oregon. And the other thing is the climate. You know, we grow grapes on the edge of where they can get ripe. We have very short nights and long days. And generally what that allows for is this beautiful slow ripening curve, allows a long time on the vine. And all that time for me equates to true phenolic ripeness true flavor, true character, true complexity. And I think lastly, it's also the passion and dedication of the people here in the industry. If you were to look back in the history of, of Oregon winemaking, most of the pioneers here in Oregon came from different jobs. They came from different places. They wanted to be here. It's family owned. We care. We're not just making a beverage. We're not just following a recipe. I like to look at, at it as a symphony and you have all these different instruments playing together and in harmony, but creating something that's more than the individual instrument, creating something that's unique and complex and, and have that consistent quality year after year, which is in my view, so important. We hope that everybody, when they, when they drink a bottle of A to Z, they're, they're thinking about really about Oregon. We're trying to channel place. We're trying to channel that uniqueness. We only have a limited amount of time, a limited amount of vintages in our lifetime. Every vintage is important. And I think that it's reflected in the DNA of Oregon, that, that quest for perfection, that, that drive for excellence.
All right, so I took it off uh, screen share. Is it back on our faces again, Cass? Yes, I see the faces. Awesome, awesome. So, um, so any questions about like our intro kind of video before I go into like more presentation stuff or comments, feedback? Can I just say that was beautiful? Where did you find that? Uh, so, uh, Cass, I found it when I was researching Erica Fremont's uh, Riesling from A to Z. And uh, they don't have very many pictures on the A to Z Wineworks website. So I clicked on the video and I'm like, oh my goodness, not only does it have the pictures, it has this great message that is really about the spirit of Oregon, gives you the sense of the fog and the hills that are pushed up above the valley, um, the sense of the winemakers. I mean, we heard about that, but the winemaking uh, family in Oregon is really special too. So they talked a little bit about that. The winemakers up there, they're really, there's this like sense of family that is between wineries. So one of the wines we're seeing today, Jamie's wine, is from Brooks Winery. And uh, Brooks uh, has this really special story. So their um, winemaker and owner, uh, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy died suddenly in 2005, unexpectedly. I don't remember if it was a heart attack or what like the exact thing was. And it was just about harvest time. The other winemaker, so harvest came in and the other winemakers, they call it the, like the Jimmy's harvest type thing. They had like a dozen winemakers come in and they made the wine in Jimmy's style. And just absolutely amazing. And I heard about this when I lived in California, actually, because uh, Jimmy's sister, Janie, lives in Pebble Beach and she came in and she was pouring Jimmy's wines. And that's the first time I experienced Brooks was 05, 06 in Carmel, California. And I got to hear about how Janie is preserving uh, Jimmy's legacy for his son, Pascal, the sole inheritor of Brooks Winery. Uh, and Brooks wine is just so special, Jamie. So I'm so glad that you picked that one. We're gonna be tasting, or she's gonna be tasting the Brooks Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley today. And Brooks is also really known for making Riesling wine as well. They make more types of Riesling than any other producer in the United States. Um, but back to you, Kiss, that was a lot. Now, I'd like to welcome Kimberly Moore for visiting us. So glad you made it, yeah. sweetie. Oh, you're on mute. Hi, Kim. Oh, well, there you uh, go. Welcome. Somebody said Riesling, so I had to come. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. And what'd you bring, Kim? Welcome, welcome. You're here. I have a, sh a Trump sh sh wine, actually. So you did not bring a Riesling. No, I didn't. You know, I haven't had a Riesling in like forever. We have to fix that. All I, right. I've been doing Pinot Grigio lately for some reason. Oh, well, Pinot Gris from Oregon is absolutely fabulous. Um, but let me go into the, I can talk a lot more about Pinot Gris. So I could do that before we go into the presentation. Let me just mention Pinot Gris. So no one has a Pinot Gris today, but Pinot Gris from Oregon is phenomenal. Pinot Gris and Pinot Grigio are the same grape, but Pinot Gris is a really different taste, a different mouthfeel than Pinot Grigio. Pinot Grigio refers to the Italian kind of style, which is a uh, it could be a dry-ish wine, but it could be off dry. Um, it's a medium acidity, very like easy to drink, and it has a bitterness on the mouth. Um, the, the tasting analogy is putting baby aspirin under your tongue and having that taste. That's what Pinot Grigio kind of bitterness tastes. Pinot Gris, on the other hand, channels Alsace, France, um, which is on 
the eastern side of France in the rain shadow of the mountains. So it's a warm growing climate. And it's got this really like full bodied expression of this Pinot Gris grape where it's oily on the tongue. It's got like this orange zest. It's like so ripe and rich. It is like a Chardonnay almost style of Pinot Gris. And that's how Oregon's expression is for me, a Pinot Gris. So if you get a chance to go back out there and get some Pinot Gris, I would uh, definitely recommend it. All right, all right. I'll go to the I'll go to the presentation unless there's more to talk about first cast. Wait, is is anyone else completely blown away by how much Beth knows about this? Did I any- was gonna say, oh my god, I've missed this so much. I used to go over to Beth all the time, and I would get such an education on just about everything from makeup to wine. It was heaven. I that was so much fun, Kim. So much fun. Uh- <laughs> I was able to go when I was in uh, uh, the D.C. area years ago. Uh, I was able to go to uh, Elizabeth's, one of her wine tastings at her home there in Alexandria. Oh, my word. I loved it. And the last year of SCC, she had uh, a wine tasting event I was able to go to. I was blown away by her knowledge of wine. So when I heard a couple of weeks ago about this wine tasting, I, I just had to had to attend. So she's phenomenal. Yeah. Thank you for doing this. Oh, my pleasure, Jamie. Thank you guys for inviting me. Beth, um, did we miss sharing your education in this? Because you used to do this for a little bit for a career too. Do you mind sharing actually? Like, I, I don't know if oh, people sure. fully know how certified you are. Uh, sure. So, um, for, so I was in the military, you probably all know that I was in the United States Navy and I was trying to figure out what do I want to do for a living when I get out? So I'm like, I love wine. I love what uh, everything I've learned about the wine industry and people have been asking me for years if I was in the industry. I'm like, well, so let me figure out how to get into the industry. So, um, <coughs> so I studied and tested to become a level one sommelier through the court of master sommeliers. Level one is not the highest level, that is the lowest level. They call it an intro sommelier. I've not worked in a restaurant or anything like that, um, but I didn't have to uh, self-study. I tasted a lot of wine while I was reading this wine analyst. It was just phenomenal. So what I recommend, if you want to feel like you're traveling and you're a geek like I am, get the wine analyst from Hugh Johnson, buy wines from that region and read that book while you drink the wines. It is, to me, just like the best wine. Um, um, can we share that in the comments later, the name of the book? Oh yeah, the Wine Atlas. Oh, the Wine Atlas is a classic. I've got like three different editions. Um, and I think the Wine Atlas by Hugh Johnson. And I think 2018 is the latest one. Make sure you get the latest. It's changing all the time. It's agriculture after all. Um, and then I'm also, uh, so attested through the um, Society of Wine Educators. And I'm a certified specialist of wine through the Society of Wine Educators. The Society of Wine Educators has two levels for wine. One is a certified specialist of wine. The other is CWE, Certified Wine Educator. And so um, the uh, CSW kind of track is for people who often want to do wine education. Like they're working like wine tastings at say a winery, wine tastings with the public, um, where the sommelier track is the one people have heard of, but it's more of a restaurant kind of track. There's an additional track that I've not done any study in called WSET Wine and Spirits Education tra- tra- uh, Trust. And that's uh, for people who are tending to go more the wine di- distribution track. Does that answer your question, Cass? 
So impressive. And I just got to say, like, you know, when we threw this out there for Beth to do this, she was like, I've got a presentation, I've got slides, she has a map. She isn't, we're not just tasting wine. Through COVID, when many of us are not traveling or able to travel, you're taking us on a wine vacation tonight. And I love the whole wine outlet. Like you're teaching us how to have a wine vacation at home. If we can't leave, we can totally escape with Beth and the wine atlas and, and wine and spirits. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. And I think it was Linda Ann asked me, hey, can you know, can you teach us something about how to create a vacation to Oregon? Is that you, Linda? Uh, and so I'm like, oh, that's something I'm an expert at. You know, I've done that lots of times. I love it, love it, love it. So first of all, make sure you stay in the wine valley itself. And with that, I'm going to go over to the slide presentation so I can start showing you the maps and get it integrated. So let me get it queued up over here and then go to um, uh, share screen. Hold on, I've got three monitors here. So it takes a little while with the cursors to get everything perfect. You're good. While you're doing that, I'll let the girls know. Um, ladies, all the posts have been shared to your Facebook pages. So there might be comments on your individual Facebook page that we don't see. But on the My Feminine Heart page, Stephanie Margaret Uber, who's one of our club members, has given us a shout out and just wanted to say hi to Stephanie. All right. Can you all see the display? Yep. Perfect. Awesome. All right. So first off, Oregon wine tasting. So this is a picture of the Domain Druin estate. Three of us tonight have the Domain Druin, Dundee Hills, Pinot Noir, and this is Dundee Hills. Uh, isn't that just gorgeous? Oh my goodness. So notice that that fog level is below Dundee Hills. That is a key feature of Dundee, Hill, Dundee Hills because the entire uh, Willamette Valley fills with fog and it provides a cooling effect um, on the grapes, you know, cools it down really fast at night. And you see that Dundee Hills is just a little above that. So it could be a little bit warmer than some of the areas that get completely blanketed by fog like Eola Amity Hills. And those are the two regions of the Willamette Valley I'm gonna focus on today, the Dundee Hills and Eola Amity Hills. So here's an overall uh, map of the Willamette Valley. So if you notice up at the top for reference, here's Washington State and the Columbia River. If we kept going up, there's the Columbia River Gorge. At the northern side of the valley, you see there's Portland. Just a half hour outside, we've got Dundee Hills and the town of Newburgh. The town of Newburgh is one of the amazing places to stay if you go on vacation. Highly recommend if you're looking for a real splurge, the Allison Resort and Spa. Um, so Dundee Hills, so you notice that there's these hills coming out of the valley hills here, Eola Amity Hills, and we've got this like valley floor. We're going to talk a little bit about how that uh, geography was created. There's also note over here, this Van Duser Corridor. It's now an ADA, an American Viticultural Area, but it also rever refers to this corridor between the mountains where fog can come in and come up the valley. And so we've got a slide on that too. Um, so I had to pick a subset of today's wines uh, for us to have a specific slide on, but that doesn't mean we can't talk about all the wines that you're tasting. Uh, so three of these are specific to like Willamette Valley overall. It can be drawn from a variety of regions. And then the Domain Druin is from Dundee Hills in particular. Um, first one we have is the A to Z Riesling, Willamette Valley. And it is sort of actually, the A to Z Riesling, I take that back, is actually from Oregon. I mistyped this. 
so it is from Willamette Valley, but also from Southern Oregon and Columbia River Gorge. The Argyle Pinot Noir, the tasting room is right here in Dundee Hills. Uh, Brooks, even though this one is sourced from the Willamette Valley, their tasting room is here in Willamette Hills along with a lot of their vineyards. Domain Druin is back up in Dundee Hills. So let me look a little bit more at the topography. So take a look at this valley. Look at how flat it is overall. And then we've got these mountains coming off to the side. This mountain section here, Eola Amity Hills. And if you're driving through the valley, it looks like these rocks have just been pushed off next to each other. Uh, just incredible how it comes out of the valley floor. And look how these rocks here are coming out too. We're gonna look at a slide uh, related to the Missoula floods and see that the Missoula floods or what created these, um, these mountains that come out of the valley floor. Also, we've got this Van Duzer corridor. So right here, we've got this channel where fog, coastal fog from the Pacific Ocean comes in and cools the valley. And so coastal fog, um, so that's created because the uh, Pacific Ocean is very cold. Um, down in California, where I lived, it was about 55 degrees. I don't know the exact temperature on the Pacific Ocean up here, but it's nothing like the Atlantic where we can actually go out and it's like the temperature of the air and backwater. So it creates this huge amount of fog over it. That fog comes in and it hits these mountains. These mountains, again, Eola, Amity Hills. There's a huge cooling effect there. And the fog can also go out the Van Duzer Corridor. The fog is going to come up and fill the valley and then it's going to hit the Dundee Hills, but not going to go all the way up. And we're going to get some fog hitting these other areas, but you can see that it's a little bit more sheltered up here. Jam Hill, Carlton. We've got Ribbon Ridge in here and Chihuahuan Mountains. All right, so let me just talk about the Missoula floods. So from the first winery I went to in Oregon, they're like, well, the Missoula floods caused this, the Missoula floods caused that. I'm like, whoa, 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 back up. What are the Missoula floods? Tell me about this. And they're like, all right, so let me tell you about Glacial Lake Missoula in Montana. All right, so going all the way to Montana. So back Way back, many ice ages ago, this glacial lake would form. Part of that part of being a glacial lake is that there's an ice dam. And that ice dam, you know, I don't know the exact details if it's like right here or other spots, but that ice dam, uh, there'd get so much pressure in the lake from building up the water that this dam would break. And this water, you see all this water here, it, the water from glacial lake Missoula would come flooding down all the way through the Columbia River Valley, which is right in here. And it would flood down the Columbia River Gorge and it cut out this gorge, absolutely gorgeous, just these sharp rocks. And then it would deposit soil, including volcanic soil, volcanic rocks, all the way into the Willamette Valley. And you see these areas sticking out, Yola Amity Hills, Dundee Hills, those kind of areas are deposits of volcanic soil, which is called jewelry soil, also called basalt. And so that's one of the many types of soil uh, that we find in the Willamette Valley. Uh, and the mountain sort of areas versus the valley floor are the ones that tend to grow wine grapes better uh, because they're less rich. Rich soil is good for farming, but not good for farming grapes because the grapes tend to do better when they have to struggle. So again, glacial lake Missoula floods again and again and again. The waters race down at 80 miles per hour per the, through the Columbia River Gorge, carry all sorts of rocks and sediment with them and it deposits in the Willamette Valley and also creates the geographic features we see in the Willamette Valley. All right, so that brings us to our next wine. Um, our first wine is um, Erica. She's got an A to Z uh, wine uh, from Oregon, and that's a Riesling. 
Cass, is there any way to show like the participants and um, the screen or is that not possible? Like um, to share the slide and go back and forth? I think so. All right, go ahead, Eric. Eric is first. Go ahead and Eric and unmute. Okay. Shoot. So Erica, so um, the Riesling I saw, I saw you've got a medium dry Riesling. So I think it's going to be right in your like palate that you like based on what I know about you. So yeah. what do you think of the A to Z Riesling? Say that again. What do you think about the A to Z Riesling? You know, do you like it? I, I do like it. Um, it's, I was just thinking about how to describe it. It was, I'm going to call it between off dry and dry okay um, i guess um that sounds fair that sounds fair from based on what i saw on the the chart i think it's a, a tiny bit drier than the uh chateau saint michel that you turned me on to <laughs> yeah so chateau saint michel is a riesling from washington state huge producer of riesling right um which it well, that's the Chateau Saint Michel is my go-to <laughs> usually. Right, right. Uh, and this is just a touch drier, which is I don't. I've had the I've had some that's dry, and I, I don't care for just all the way dry. But um, yeah, this is just a little bit to the dry side of off dry, I think. And where do you mind sharing with people where you found the wine? Because I um, Wegmans. A Wegmans, you said? Wegmans grocery store. Yeah. Awesome. But so their, their stuff is divided. Well, they have a reasonable, for a grocery store, they have a reasonable, quite a selection. I mean, not as much as total beverages or something like that, but um, uh, yeah. Um, very cool. And how do you like your Riesling by itself? Are there favorite foods that you like to have with it? Is it just like your go-to anytime? I, anytime I'm drinking wine, it's, it's got nothing to do with food, really. I mean, uh, one, one of the links I, I sent you was a, um, well, was a description of the wine, and then it had some pairings underneath that. Um, yeah. If I remember, it was things yeah. like oysters and shrimp and several things that I don't remember right now. I'd have to go back to the length to look at it. Oh, absolutely. So I can talk a little bit about that. So Riesling is just such a terrific grape and wine for pairing with food. And one of the reasons for that is that Riesling is a high acid grape. And your wine should have more acid than your food if we want to uh, accentuate the food. Uh, think about it like adding a squeeze of lemon to your food. That's what Riesling is like to food. Is it accentuates the food because of the high acid? Um, Riesling is often made with residual sugar that we perceive as sweetness. Uh, Erica's wine here is a little bit off dry. And so that sweetness means that it's gonna help pair with spicier foods as well. So you're having trouble pairing that Thai food the Chinese food, any of your spicier foods, Riesling is a really great go-to wine for those parents. Uh, Riesling is also really good if you've got a mixed audience. So you've got people who aren't very used to drinking wine and people that are really experienced. 
Riesling can be that great wine uh, where you have the, the first and the person, people just coming to wine, it is approachable. It's got a lot of fruit into it. It can have some great, really great white rock minerality, but uh, super easy to drink. But then there's stuff for people to geek out with as well. So thank you so much, Erica, for bringing a uh, Riesling. Um, and we should have you share what you're grateful for while, while I've got you. Um, yeah, um, it, it, it's going to sound corny, but I'm, I'm really thankful I found this group um, and the things every, every Tuesday and everything. Um, it gives me something to look forward to, especially now when you can't do a lot anyway. Um, so yeah, it kind of, it, it sort of helps keep me sane, I think. <laughs> minus, well, minus the effects of the wine, but. <laughs> uh, Erica, that's not corny at all. And yeah. we're so happy you found us too. We love having you as part of our club. Thank you. This is very cool. <laughs> Um, Elizabeth, I sent you a message. Um, I think you are in control of what is big and what is small. So when someone's speaking, you might want to um, back out of the slides if possible, or else you guys are really tiny. Okay. Yep. And so I will have to do that for the next one because I did not know that I was in charge or how to do that. So let me just, uh, so let me go on to the next slide and then I can show that screen and then we can back out. Does that sound good? Perfect. And Cass, you are going to be up next. Uh, so Cass has an Argyle Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley. Um, Argyle, um, this is their like winery tasting room, uh, which I have not been to, but it is always filled with crowds of people. Look how fun that looks like. Uh, and it's just off the main drag in uh, Newburgh, Oregon, um, in that general area. Um, so anytime we're going back to a hotel, you know, going to dinner, we see Argyle. And in fact, when we checked into um, Allison, they gave us a bottle of Argyle sparkling wine um, for our honey. Um, and then we still have Argyle sparkling wine that we get for our personal uh, collection. So I'm going to stop the share for right now so that we can see Cass. Did that do the trick, Cass? Uh, we'll know in a, in a minute or two. Um, yep, yeah, so this is this is my Argyle wine. We got it at the PA Wine and Spirits because I'm in Pennsylvania. And Beth was right. She said that these wines would be really easy to get. Um, I had my husband go for me and um, I Googled a bunch of the ones that should have been available in the store. And I saw your intro was so interesting because I saw wines that were like $300 a bottle. So the only thing I told him was get the cheap one. <laughs> afraid that without my guidance, he'd come on with like a hundred or $200 bottle of wine. <laughs> um, so I will to say this tastes delicious. This does not taste cheap, even though it does have a screw top. Um, Great, they yeah. keep wine fresh. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's really good. It oh, sorry, Beth, go ahead. Oh, it, uh, screw caps, so uh, Sculpin enclosures, they're great because they keep the wine fresh and they save about a dollar a bottle in production costs that can be passed on to the consumer. Oh, that's awesome. Learning so much. Um, yeah, to me, this tastes really good. I like a dark red. Um, it's kind of smooth. Like it's, I would say it's very smooth, but it has a little bit of, um, do you ever drink a wine where it's like, 
like it has a little bit of like a like a tang or a kick like what what is that Beth uh so by the tang or the kick is it like your mouth is like curling up a little bit or is it more that my mouth is watering or something else mm, okay wait hold on let me drink again <laughs> no pressure there Cass I know. I don't know. It's it's not a sourness, but it's kind of in that direction, and it does make my mouth water. Ah, so does anyone know the answer? So what is it in wine that makes the mouth water? Tannins? Nope. That was a good guess. The only thing I knew. Well, if there's no other guesses, I'm happy to, to chime in. Susan, did you have an answer? No, no. All right. So the mouthwatering feeling. So just like in Riesling, the uh, acid is the mouthwatering feeling. The acid, higher acid wines make the mouth water, and it make it gives that excitement. That saliva is flowing. Oh, so you're tasting acid. I had no idea. I never even noticed that before. Now I think every time I go to drink wine, I'm gonna be like, is, "Am I? Is my mouth watering?" <laughs> Yes. So if your mouth is watering, that means it's a great wine to pair with food because it's most likely going to be more acidic than the food you have, unless you're putting a lot of citrus on your food or a lot of vinegar. You know, so salad would be really hard to pair if you've got a, like a really harsh vinaigrette. But, you know, outside of that, you know, having a Pinot Noir or a Riesling with a good acid level is going to be great with your food. I love that so many of these wines work with food in general because we have some big eating holidays coming up starting in a couple of days. Uh, yeah, let me tell you one other thing about both Riesling and Pinot Noir because the other thing you mentioned, Cass and Kim, was tannin. So both of these wines, so white wines in general, uh, particularly if they are, don't have oak um, in the finishing process, in the aging process, um, and Pinot Noir tend to be low in tannin. Low tannin wines are good with pairing with foods, different foods and high tannin wines. High tannin wines would be like a Cabernet Sauvignon, Syrahs, Malbec, uh, Cabernet Franc. Those high tannin wines are good for pairing with things that have a lot of fat and protein like meats and cheeses. And they really help tame the, um, the tannin in the wine. The protein and fats bind with the tannin, they smooth them out and they make it in from short chains into long chains. So it really has a smoothing effect. But we have a problem with tannin when it comes to fish and seafood. When it, tannin, so these things that are in those high tannin wines, like the cabs, Bordeaux style blends, things that are aged in really heavy new oak, when they combine with seafood, they tend to create a metallic taste. So we, um, and a taste of metal, like it's like licking your keys. Have you ever licked your keys? Uh, <laughs> it's not, I, or um, like sliced into an aluminum pie plate and tasted that aluminum pie plate. It is not the best taste. It is not the taste that I want to create with a wine pairing. So when you've got seafood, let's say you've got a shrimp appetizer. That was classic at you know, one of the Italian kind of Thanksgivings I went to of having a shrimp cocktail appetizer. Don't serve your, your high tannin wines like your Cabernet Franc. You can serve a Riesling. You know, I still probably want to do Pinot Noir, but a Pinot Noir is also a low tannin option for your red wine lovers that refuse to have a white. This was one of the reasons why Pinot Noir and salmon are a classic pairing. 
Pinot Noir and salmon. So we've got the, the fish oils. The fish oils will bind to tannin to create a metallic taste. Pinot Noir is low in tannin, but Pinot Noir is also high in acid. So it's like that feeling of the lemon juice over the salmon, just so delicious. Cuts through that fat because it's a high acid wine and salmon is that high acid, sorry, high fat fish. So, hey, Beth, I got a question. If you go to one of the restaurants and they offer a surf and turf, which you kind of alluded on, but you, a lot of times that comes out together, you know, that you have shrimp with your steak. Is there a recommendation there? Um, so the question is, with surf and turf, you've got both a seafood option and a steak option. So one option, so let's say you're doing this at home, would be to open two bottles and have a glass of your white and your red. Another I like option, that option. Yeah, that's an awesome option at home and out in a restaurant that might be a little bit more expensive uh, proposition. Uh, so something that might pair with both could be a Chardonnay, um, a richer Chardonnay. You could do a, re I've had Riesling with steak, you know, not a ribeye, but you know, something that's more like a filet mignon where there's not a ton of extra fat in it. Um, uh, or you, I've also will order a red wine that goes with the steak and I will not eat it with the seafood. I just won't have the wine with the seafood. Uh, I know that might sound silly to not have one with every single bite, but you know, how many bites of the seafood are there really? Uh, because I don't want to create that metallic taste. Um, Sauvignon Blanc, an unoaked Sauvignon Blanc could go really well with both of those. You know, it might not be perfect for the steak, but it's going to go really well with the seafood. Uh, Pinot Noir would be that perfect split the difference, particularly if it's a tenderloin filet mignon. Uh, the Pinot Noir would go great with that. And there is going to be only a little bit of interference with uh, the seafood. Does that help answer your question about how I'd approach that, Kim? Absolutely. Well, Beth, I have a question along the same lines. Uh, we tend to drink uh, white wine mostly, and we eat a lot of fish and not really red meat hardly at all. But like Pinot Noir with poultry, and is that something that sounds like a good pairing, or does that make sense? Oh, so Pinot Noir poultry, is that your question? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let me tell you the advice that I got from Graham. The first is the second winery I think I ever went to at Cake Bread Cellars in Napa Valley. It's like when you don't know what to pair it with, pair it with chicken because chicken goes with everything. So you can choose anything, Susan, basically with um, to go with poultry. And so it really has to do when you come to poultry, it's really more the preparation style of the poultry rather than the poultry itself because poultry doesn't have any of those crazy oils like fish oils. It doesn't have those huge amounts uh, a fat, like a ribeye steak. Uh, so it really goes well with every one that you compare with it. Yeah, that's good. And, uh, we mostly, like I mentioned, we mostly drink white wine and even with chicken, but when we've had duck, you know, which is a bit heavier, then we go with Pinot Noir. Oh my goodness, duck. So I've also had Pinot Noir with goose. So we got so lucky a couple of years back, we were invited to this goose. Christmas Eve, and if, if someone who's normally a vegetarian, they went non-vegetarian to make goose in this German style. And we had a couple of bottles of Pinot Noir, just phenomenal, because goose and duck are higher fat meat, and having that acidity of the Pinot Noir to cut through the fat is just amazing. Yeah, can you explain it? Because I didn't know any of that. It was instinct, but yeah, that, that really helps and makes sense. Absolutely. All right, so Cass, do you think we're ready to move on to the next wine? I do. I got to say, like, my mouth is already watering from the acid in my wine. And then Susan mentioned duck, and I'm like, oh, duck. <laughs> um, I just want to lift a glass to you, ladies, 
and um, say that I, I'm grateful for so many things today. And I could like be grateful for, for the rest of the show. And I don't want to take the time, but most important, I am grateful for every single one of you. I, I promise you from the bottom of my heart, I could not have gotten through COVID without you. I love you all. Thank you very much for being a part of this. You're here. Cheers, Cass. Thank you. All right. And Jamie, you are going to be up next. So I'm just going to share the screen here. Beth, you've done a phenomenal job, by the way. I love this whole presentation. Thank you for all the time you took for this. Oh, my pleasure, Cass. My pleasure. I really just thought we'd be drinking. <laughs> this is amazing. Well, you know, I started off that way and I'm like, but I got all this information on what people are actually going to be drinking. So I could find out a little bit more. I'm like, well, if I'm going to find out a little bit more, we should have pictures. And if we're going to have pictures, then we may as well do go on vacation and see what the vineyards are actually like and experience it. As always, Beth, you make everything better. Cheers to you. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate the positivity on the show. All right. So here is Brooks. So this is a Brooks Wine Estate uh, in Eola Amity Hills AVA. It's one of those areas that's pushed up off the valley floor, again, uh, from the Missoula floods. Um, it's a block, it has the Van Duser corridor on the western side. So we've got that big fog bank coming in and cooling down the vines uh, earlier than the vines in the northern part of the valley. And oh, and that's Mount Hood in the background. So this is looking toward the east to northeast uh, perspective here. And just look at all that fog. I mean, isn't that just gorgeous? So Brooks and Vines have been around, I think, since the 70s. Uh, they are predominantly planted on native rootstock, or rather the rootstock, like the French rootstock. They have not been transplanted onto American rootstock to prevent phylloxera. So they have been very fortunate so far that they have not had root loss come in to destroy their vineyards. Um, and that's a whole nother sort of uh, topic. Um, but uh, Brooks has just the best tasting experience. So I mentioned earlier about Jimmy, the owner and winemaker dying suddenly, his sister Janie uh, coming in uh, from Pebble Beach, taking over the management of the vineyard to uh, prepare, Pas uh, keep it for Pascal, who was just a kid at the time. Pascal's now, um, it's the late teens or early twenties and off stuffing harvest stuff in different parts of the world. Um, but Jeannie has set up the most amazing hospitality room. Um, you could spend all day at Brooks. So Giselle and I, at our last visit to Brooks, we actually did the Jeep um, off-roading type experience where we tasted the wines, I don't know, maybe four to six wines uh, out in the actual fields where they were grown. We got to taste clone side by side. We got to compare the 777 clone to the Pomard clone, which I'm like, huh? There's a different, you know, what's this kind of difference? But we got to actually see, oh, and it was August. So the grapes are almost like fully ripe. You know, it's harvested somewhere between um, August and October, you know, usually getting closer to October, but they were still tasted good. So it was really, really cool. And just the wine education aspect at Brooks, the hospitality at Brooks, you get back to the tasting room after this experience, which it was just the two of us out in the vineyard. And then they had the wine and cheese uh, sort of pairings in, uh, They've got a chef on site that are making these foods. You can book like private sort of events. Uh, oh man, it is just like out of this world kind of experience. 
And again, they specialize in Riesling and in Pinot Noir. There's, uh, there's got to be at least a dozen different types of Riesling. Not types, not meaning different types of grapes, but different vineyard growing sites that are made from that specific site. Uh, Brooks uh, grows grapes and it also has contracts on grapes. And I believe they control that um, aspects of that growing process. And this particular uh, wine that Jamie has, it's sourced from a whole bunch of different actual like vineyard sites. So I'm pretty sure it was not sourced from the Willamette Valley floor that has low quality, it's sourced from high quality sites. But since it's not all in Eola Amity Hills, that's why it says Willamette Valley. And so I'm just going to uh, come out of the presentation here uh, so that we can hear uh, Jamie, let me just, okay, so am I back where we see people again? Yeah, all right. Yes, yes, yes. So Jamie, you're having the Brooks, Willamette Valley, Pinot Noir. So tell us about like what you're experiencing, tasting, et cetera, et cetera. Well, um, it is fantastic. Um, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this was to learn more about wine. And I know that uh, Beth is obviously, as we mentioned earlier, expert. And, uh, and this is very smooth. I mean, learning tonight uh, that acidic count, you know, is high. It's very smooth. Uh, it tastes really good. I, I don't know all the wine terms. Okay. I'm not a big wine, I guess, connoisseur as far as knowing all the terms, <laughs> but I know it tastes good. And knowing that it's really good uh, with fish and salmon, that makes good sense. Uh, and, but um, what, I mean, Beth, I mean, I'm not sure all the taste, but it's very smooth. It is, uh, it's not bold. Um, it doesn't have a lot of, I think you mentioned earlier with the other uh, wines, it doesn't have a lot of tannins, right? And so it's not bold, but it's very smooth. And historically, I've loved a lot of the high tannin uh, wines uh, from Italy, the Merlots, the Piedmont wines from Italy. Uh, but this is extremely good. And, uh, and I can see why it's, it's much better with, uh, and I don't really think of darker or uh, Pinot wines as much with fish, but what you said, that makes sense with salmon. You know, I mean, I'm looking forward to having some really good uh, um, salmon with us. You know, so it'd be fantastic. So, um, but yeah, sorry. Sorry, someone's trying to call me. They'll stop in a minute. Um, But yeah, I mean, that is, it's wonderful. So um, thank you. Oh yeah. Thank you for sharing. And I love, I need to put this and I love your term, a wine vacation. And, uh, and now you've really piqued my interest uh, uh, to go to the uh, Oregon um, Valley. To, Valley. Yeah, I mean, and the reason I got this, I mean, I, I got it locally. I live in Alabama, central Alabama, and I went to this really nice uh, store uh, in uh, Montgomery a couple of days ago, and I told the owner, and it, they've got a lot of really good stuff uh, there, and I told him what I was looking for, and 
uh, Beth gave me a really nice list of ones to get. And, you know, I sent her, I went there and I sent her pictures of all the wine that they had on her, on her list. So, oh, you got to get the Brooks. It's, it's, it's the best. I said, I, I'm very impressed that you can get it. So, but yeah, I see why, what you mean. This is really good. So cheers. Salutes to everyone. Here, here. Um, so I still want to hear what Jamie's grateful for, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the flavors that we experience in Pinot Noir. So typical flavors of Pinot Noir are going to be red fruits and some black fruits. So red fruits are going to be things like cherry. So you'll see things like bean cherry, red cherry, dark cherry, strawberry, and that strawberry might be baked strawberry, strawberry leaf, or ripe strawberry, or green strawberry. Um, so raspberry, red raspberry, black raspberry. So, so these red fruits are really the predominant sort of things. You know, and you might see an occasional uh, blackberry or black raspberry, but red fruits are really predominant. Oregon wines. So now Brooks, that she has is tends to be more fruit forward, a little bit less earth. That's why I placed it earlier in the tasting before we get to Domaine Druin, because Domaine Druin has more earthiness to it and is a fuller body compared to the Brooks style um, of wine. Um, but uh, Jamie, uh, back to you, because we want to hear what you are grateful for this Thanksgiving. Um, I am grateful, like um, Cass was saying earlier. Uh, I love, uh, I mean, I've known Cass and Elizabeth uh, for years. And, uh, and uh, I love being able to support anything really that, that Cass does. She's amazing. And she has such a uh, wonderful uh, passion for helping with the trans community and I've gotten to know her well over the last couple of years with the photography and everything she's done and my feminine heart and um, I'm thankful for for you all for you girls here um, I'm thank and thankful for all the trans community because it's made me a better person uh, and it gives me myself you know a lot of I mean Friendship is what, what makes us, you know, friendships, connections, and love, and loving each other, you know, that, that's important. And that's what I'm most thankful for, each and every one of you, uh, for this Thanksgiving. Uh, so that, that, that's what life is all about, in my opinion. So, you know, and I love you all. So thank you. Thank you for being a part of my life in one way or another. I really appreciate it. And thank you, Beth. And Thank you, Cass, for doing this. You're both amazing. And like I said, uh, Beth is is just outstanding uh, with her knowledge of wine. I didn't know a lot of this that she mentioned earlier as far as her, I knew that she did the wine. Um, uh, she did that as a profession before moving. Uh, and, but yeah, it, it's just it, most impressive. I've learned a lot already and we're not even finished. So. Yeah, cool, yeah, thank you, thank you all. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving and with your friends, family, and loved ones. So, Thank you, Jamie. We're, we're grateful for you too. Here's a glass to Jamie and all our, all our friends. You're here. Hey Beth, I got a question for you here. Thank you. So you described, you know, being able to define and pick out taste and flavors. Did you do something to 
enhance your palate or to be able to do that? Because when somebody asks me, you know, to describe the wine, I'm like, it's, it's very, you know, the bouquet is very whiny and the, you know, on my palate, it's, it has a very wine taste to it. How do you, how did you develop your palate? Uh, so the question is, how did I develop my palate for wine where I could taste different flavors and describe them? Um, so the real way that I figured this out, or a lot of it, so one is to going to a lot of wine tastings, but the real like detail was going to the Court of Master Sommelier's introductory sommelier course, and we tasted 22 wines blind over a day and a half. And my brain hurt and it was not because of drinking because we spit every single one. My brain hurt because they seared so much information onto my brain. We tasted the wine. They're like, you are tasting leather right now. The other way to describe this leather, it is a seared meat on a grill. And that, you know, Sangiovese that we were having at the time. And they're like, that's what leather tastes like. That's what seared meat tastes like. The flavor in Cabernet that I described for years uh, as... Um, Monterey dust. It was my absolute favorite, favorite flavor, but I didn't know what it was called. I learned that it was called Forest Floor. My very favorite Cabernet flavor is called Forest Floor. I'm like, oh my God, I've got a name for this delicious Monterey dust. Uh, <laughs> and that was like a play on the Rutherford dust thing that they, um, from uh, Napa Valley, that I just made up a term because I didn't know how, what to describe it. So Kim, I guess the answer to like how I learned official terms was I studied really hard for months on end, day in and day out, spent thousands of dollars tasting lots of wines with the wine atlas. Then I want to have my brain hurt for two days with the court of master sommeliers, having master sommeliers, you know, tell me again and again, what am I tasting, you know, and searing that onto my brain in a 360 degree kind of experience. So if I hear you correctly, to develop a good palate, you want me to drink a lot. Got it. Um, so if you really want to, uh, I'm assuming that you're asking, uh, Jamie, would you mind muting yourself? Um, so Kim, I think you're asking. I'm sorry, I, that was hilarious, what, what Kim said. <laughs> yes, uh, so Kim, uh, if you're wanting a more uh, approachable way to figure out how to taste wine rather than what I did, you know, because you asked, how did I learn? You didn't ask, how can you learn? How you can learn, so you, there's classic wines that you can have that have classic flavor profiles. And so if you look, you can research online, for example, some of these classic wines for someone like say, Jamie likes a high tannin wine, the classics would be some sort of Italian Sangiovese like a Chianti Classico Reserva, a Vino Nobile de Multipolciano, something along those lines, a Sangiovese base. So that, those have got a really set class uh, flavors. The term for Italian is it tastes like it's dead or dying in the glass. So things like raisins, dried fruit, dried meats. So tasting that and seeing, well, what does dead and dying in the glass taste like? You know, and maybe tasting what the wine looks like I did, because it's going to have descriptors in there too. So you got pictures and you get a sense of geography in place. And then tasting Rioja, Rioja from Spain, another high tannin wine. And blind tastings, Rioja and uh, Chianti Classico Reserva, the Sangiovese wines get mixed up. They get confused, even by experts. Tasting, well, well, so what is it distinctive about Rioja? What is that dill from the American oak? What does that taste like? Or that coconut from the American oak? Um, 
you know, what are these things that make Rioja a little bit distinctive? And then the, there's the other sister kind of wine that gets mixed up is a red Bordeaux. You can taste that and well, what? What is it again about this red Bordeaux that makes it distinctive? But then because you are not trying to pass a blank, blank sommelier, what is it about all three wines that is characteristic and distinctive of a high tannin, relatively high tannin wine grown, produced in a lot of new up to uh, moderate uh, age oak barrels in a relatively Southern climate uh, that's a Mediterranean kind of climate. And if you can do that, you know, that's a great way to start in terms of full body tan and red wines. Um, you could do the same thing uh, for all sorts of other ones, but that was just an example. I could spend uh, way longer than we have. We talk about, well, what are a whole series of wines you can do to taste these differences? Um, and I don't know if Kim is still there. Oh, your video came back. So Kim, uh, I'm here. here. Yeah, thank so you very much. One tasting that you can do of comparing those three wines uh, that are very similar but have small differences. I appreciate that, Bethy. That's actually the question I was looking for. So thank. <laughs> okay. Okay. Rather than my spend thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours, uh, yeah, much more fun. All right, so let's go on to the, the uh, last one that I've got notes for. Let me just pull up that slide and then switch over to the share screen. Yeah. All right, so finally, we're gonna travel back up north in the Willamette Valley back to the Dundee Hills, uh, where I kind of started today with that first slide. So this is a picture of uh, the tasting room. Uh, they have an outer deck. Actually, here's the outer deck right over here. You see the umbrellas. Um, they have a gravity flow winery. Uh, whoops, sorry about that. They've got a gravity flow winery so they don't have to use pumps. So that reduces the amount of effect that external machinery has on the wine. Up here, check out this grove uh, of trees. So they actually call that the grove and wine club members can go out there and sit with their wine. And they actually have a waiter come out and pour the wine of the day. And it's usually the Dundee Hills Pinot Noir that we're having and the Arthur Chardonnay. It is just such a magical experience. One of the other things you can do that doesn't require being a wine club member is booking one of their classes. Uh, so I talked about at Brooks, how booking that Jeep uh, all-terrain kind of tour is just out of this world. At um, Domain Druin, it's the wine education in their actual classroom at a table. This is more of what Kimberly was talking about, of learning to taste these different flavors. But this one, so the one that I've been to is comparing the French and Oregon wines made by the same overall family, the Druin family, but in the Oregon style uh, versus the Burgundy style. So you get a taste wines from Joseph Druin versus Domaine Druin. So Domaine Druin was actually found out by Veronique uh, from the Joseph Druin family and uses all sorts of techniques they use in Burgundy from how closely the grapes are planted to the types of machinery they use to pick to the winemaking processes in the cellar. They come up with a really, really high quality product. You see that they're here right at the top of the hill uh, in the Dundee Hills just out of this world wine and experience one of the leaders um, of the Willamette Valley and wine production in the valley. So again, uh, if you go here, you will uh, book one of the classes. They also have a class that 
and it might have been in the same class because we went to the class more than once. Uh, they have some newer vineyards as well. In addition to Dundee Hills, they also have land down in Eola Amity Hills uh, called Rose Rock. And those wines were amazing and delicious as well as the Dundee Hills estate wines. So I definitely recommend both of those. Now we've got three of us tonight who have uh, this wine. We may have different vintages and we can talk about, uh, you know, what we're tasting and experiencing uh, with the Domaine Druin. And let me just come out of here. Let's see. Here it is. Stop share. All right. So now we're back to the main screen, right? You can see other people. Awesome. All righty. So uh, with Domain Druin, so I've got the Domain Druin, and then I think it was Linda Ann. Did you have the Domain Druin? Mm-hmm. Yes. I can't remember if it was Susan or Renee. I think it was Susan maybe who also had a Domain Druin. Yeah, I have it. All right, so three of us have this. And I'm, of course, curious what vintage you have. I've got the 2016 tonight. Mm -hmm. And what, what do you all have? 16. I have 2017. 2017. I could have picked that one as well. I had that one too, because I used to be a wine club member at Domain Druin. The only reason I'm not is because we had to turn back from, you know, like nine wine clubs to like three for space and finances, you know. <laughs> Otherwise, we would still be members. Um, so what are you all experiencing with this wine? Uh, Susan, the screen is on you right now, so why don't you go first? Unless it's frozen. Uh oh, is it freezing up? Oh, it's just unfroze, just unfroze. I can mm -hmm. see that. Okay, uh, can you hear me now? I sure can. Okay. Yeah, I wanted to try this in contrast with the uh, Strangeland, which was from the uh, old Amity Hills, because uh, I wanted to have the perspective of two different types. And it's a real contrast. And by having the two, it really helped to get a viewpoint about it. But the uh, Domain Druin is much uh, longer. It's a fuller bodied one. They both are very balanced. And what they have in common is that balance and subtlety. And uh, they're both fruity. Uh, but the strange one is much more mild, I think. Strange one. Oh, <laughs> strange one. I've been saying strange one. Uh, uh, but the uh, Domain Druin, I think, is uh, it's for it's uh, has a bit of spiciness detecting, I, especially in the aftertaste. And once I started drinking that, I can't go back to the other one. I, I really like that stronger flavor. <laughs> Awesome. Well, that was really cool, Susan. Uh, thank you for sharing your experience of uh, comparing two different producers and also comparing Dundee Hills, which is north in the Willamette Valley. It's more sun is above that fog line to the Eola Amity Hills that get, is covered with fog when the fog rolls in. And do you want to share what you're grateful for while we've got you? I will. I just one other thing though. I just didn't expect that Pinot Noirs would be so contrasting. Yeah, but by having them together, if you really get a perspective of what kind of range that could cover. Uh, as far as my uh, my gratitude, uh, my wife is with me right now. She's sampling the wines alongside of me, and I have to mention her because she's been so supportive of me all these years. And uh, 
it really been be me to be my true self. So I'm just so grateful for that. And the type of support that I get from her is just completely matter of fact, it's not like over some type of issue, but it's more like just a, a comfortable acceptance. And the reason that she's with me now is not to support me on this uh, journey, but it's she was interested in this wine tasting experience. So, you know, there's a sense of, you know, normalcy with, you know, our, you know, the, the way we connect and the uh, strength she gives me. But uh, the other thing I wanted to say, is just a thank you to all the allies to the community because it's only been about 15 months that I've been out and I've seen uh, not only in the Chicagoland area, just the incredible uh, support and, uh, you know, the caring that comes from the allies, but then through my feminine heart and, uh, but it's more than that. There's the creativity and ingenuity of how you serve the community. Uh -oh. <laughs> I got a freeze from you here, Susan. Susan, are you still there? Oh man, she's saying such good stuff. I wish I could hear it. I know it's so sweet that her wife is there with her. And I love like just softly correcting her off screen. It's cracking me up. I love that they're doing this together. Yes, yes. So I did want to comment on um, Susan's like comparing, uh, oh, it was Pinot Noir and the different styles of Pinot Noir. So we're just tasting Pinot Noirs right now from Oregon, from the Willamette Valley, from the same general region, even though we got subregions of different producers. If you then expand, if you find this interesting, then you expand where your Pinot Noir is from. Pinot Noir, it's a... So they say Chardonnay is like the winemaker's grape. And Pinot Noir, again, has that different expression. I would say a lot of it is more of a terroir-based grape. It is so different compared to where it's grown. For example, in the Russian River Valley, it's got this really distinct fullness, this ripeness. The red fruit is just like so ripe and full. Santa Cruz Mountains, there's like a thinness to it. Uh, Santa Lucia Highlands, it's like this air uh, etherealness, this like bright red cherry, almost like a Queen Anne cherry, though not even red, like a yellow red cherry because it's so light and airy. And then you go and you taste burgundies. And uh, the first time I had burgundies at Capital Wine School, I'm like, <coughs> I was like spitting it out because they were so high acid. And I took Giselle, reintroduced me to burgundies that she liked to, for me to actually like burgundies. And now it's like, well, burgundy is delicious. They just didn't pick out ones that were going to meet my palate profile at Capital Wine School at that particular tasting, even though there were a dozen of them. Um, and so there, so try like Joseph Druin Pinot Noirs if you like uh, the Domaine Druin because he, uh, just phenomenal uh, production of Pinot Noir grapes from Burgundy. Uh, so that was again, just going back to Susan's comment about, hey, tasting Pinot Noir, seeing how different they are is really cool. And seeing that all over the world is really cool too. All right, Linda Ann, you've got this wine too. Tell me, tell me about your experience. Well, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I think I found a new favorite wine. So I tended to like uh, Chardonnay and Cabernet, and I think you mentioned um, Cape Bread um, yes. Vineyard, and I love Cape Bread. So I've I've always had that, and for some reason I've never really 
had a Pinot Noir that I liked. And so when you recommended this, I, I tried it and I just love it. Um, I sense more of the, the fruit that you were talking about. So I really like that. And it's not too heavy, not too light. It's uh, for me, it's just amazing. So I'm so thankful you recommended this particular one because I really like it. <laughs> it's very, very good. Um, so I'm not well-versed in how to describe wines other than when I like it, I buy it. <laughs> so I'll be buying this some more. I know that for sure. And that is such good news. And uh, Domaine Druin also makes delicious Chardonnay. It's the Arthur oh, yeah. Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. um, and so the same shop that carries the um, Dundee Hills may also carry the Chardonnay. Okay, great. And the thing I was really excited about is I eat salmon a lot. And when you said this would pair well with salmon, I'm like, oh, I cannot wait. So I'll do that tomorrow night. <laughs> Yay, that's such good news, Linda. And tell us what you were thankful for. Well, um, I'll kind of pile on with what the other ladies have been saying. Um, Cass is relatively new to me just the past couple months, but just the outpouring of love she has for our community has just been so heartwarming. And Beth, I've known you for a couple of years and I got to thinking about you and this might have, apply to lots of ladies, but you were probably the first person that ever saw me as Linda. You may not have known that, but this scared girl showed up at your house and you and Jizzy let me into your house. You treated me so special. We had some wine, but it was just the love that you have for our community is just so special. So for both you ladies and our community, I'm just so, so thankful. So a toast to, to both of you girls. Linda, thank you. Thank you very much. And Susan's back with us. I don't know if Susan wants to finish where she left off. I think Susan's frozen again. Oh, poor Susan. Cheers to Susan too. Cheers to all you ladies and everything that you do. So I do have to give a, a shout out to Susan. Somebody had reached out to me in the Chicago area kind of in crisis last week. And um, I reached out to Susan and, and a couple of her companions at the Chicago Gender Society, and they immediately reached out to that person, made sure they were okay, got them in touch with the doctor, um, you know, to make sure that they weren't going to do any harm to themselves. And just the response for a trans person in crisis was immediate. So Susan, thank you for that. And, and Linda, thank you for, for everything you do as well. Linda sent me so many messages since I had my computer crash the other week, just sending me like cheer and hope. And, and it's, I, I smiled with every one of them. Thank you. All right, so I suppose I should talk about my wine some. And I have to confess that a lot of times I just drink wine instead of taste wine, right? I drink the wine, I already know it's good quality wine. I enjoy the wine. And so I am not tasting for the tasting profile. Uh, so in a white wine, if I taste for the tasting profile, there will always be an apple, uh, red apple, yellow apple, uh, green apple. And then I have to describe, well, is it with skin? Is it without skin? Is it, you know, underripe, ripe, overripe, baked, you know, well, you know, citrus, you know, well, there will always be a citrus. Well, what citrus is it? So if someone says, oh, there's a apple and citrus, a uh, white wine. You didn't do any work, you know, because that's every single white wine. I know I'm not having white, right, white wine right, right now, but I'm doing that by way of uh, talking about what it can be like to go through the tasting, you know, and then, you know, is there minerality, is there white rock minerality, is there organic uh, earth in the wine, and oh, what kind of herbs and all that, and I have to confess, I haven't been doing 
any of that kind of work tonight. Um, if I were, instead of like drinking it like I have been, let me show you how I'd actually go about tasting the wine. First of all, I would not have been drinking so far. I would have been spitting to keep my palate fresh. And then instead of um, just drinking out of here, I'd be swirling and I swirl by putting the, the glass on the table to get the aroma up into this bulb. And you see that the bulb comes in that traps the aromas in here. And then I'm gonna sniff really deeply. Elizabeth, does that mean when we see people swirl their glass in the air that they're total posers? Uh, so swirling the glass in the air uh, is just more coordination than I desire to have. I can get a lot better swirl on the table and have the stability that comes with it. And I learned that from Graham at Cake Bread Cellars a long time ago. He was a good guy. All right, so now I've got enough wine to smell. The other had been in there for a long time. Oh, so I'm getting like a really rich berries, but I'm trying to figure out what kind of berries. So it's almost like it's a baked kind of berry because it's so rich. It's almost like, uh, it's not quite boysenberry. It's almost like a really rich blackberry. along with, I think, uh, maybe a baked strawberry in terms of fruit. But fruit is just one aspect of a wine. And let me see if I can smell anything minerality-based. I get some organic earth, um, like a potting soil kind of organic earth. Oh, and that reminds me, uh, Pinot Noir pairs really well with mushrooms. Uh, organic earth, mushrooms grow in organic earth. That's what reminded me of the mushrooms wine pairing. And if I smell, kept smelling, oh, there's baking spices. So baking spices, it's going to be like cinnamon, cloves, nutmeg. That comes from the wine being aged in oak. And then um, let me taste it on the palate just to see what I taste. So if I'm boring you, I apologize. It, it's just like, I can't describe it unless I actually think about it. I can't just describe it by drinking it. This isn't boring at all. I'm fascinated watching you do this. And I wish that I had like sniffed my wine before trying to describe my mouth watering. Mm. Oh, I totally am getting like the mouth watering sensation. So it's a higher acid kind of wine. I'm not getting, uh, so there's a sensation that you can get with a higher alcohol wine and that's like a burning on the mouth. And so this one, I'm not getting that burning on the mouth. So that's good. When it's really, really high alcohol, like a 16%, you can get this feeling of uh, a sweetness on the mouth from the high alcohol. And like Zinfandels can often have that, uh, Zinfandels in California. Yeah, so on the palate, I'm also getting that warm strawberry, I don't know if it's quite baked, but I would just say that it's a really ripe strawberry. Along with a blackberry, it's like a blackberry fresh from the vine where it still has that little bit of, um, it's almost like that tiny bit of tannin that a blackberry will have, like where it makes your tongue curl a little bit. I'm getting a tiny bit of tannin like that. And I just think I've just had a little bit too much wine to taste uh, different levels of like herbs and stuff like that. And it's always something I've had to think really hard about. If you're wanting to get better at tasting herbs, what they tell you to do is go to the grocery store and buy a lot of different herbs and press them in between your fingers and smell the oils from them. That goes back to Kimberly's question from earlier. 
and the earth in here, the earth is actually a little bit more pronounced on the on the nose, the potting soil, than it is on the palate. Um, so I'm actually not getting as much earthiness on the palate on this wine as I am on the nose. Um, so I could say a lot more, you know, I could go through analysis of, oh, well, you know, in terms of like the ripeness of the swine, it's definitely not from California. It's not from the old world. It's from a cooler climate, you know, and thus it's clearly from Oregon, you know, but um, it's a, a lot more analysis than what I've actually tasted. Uh, but I do want to talk about what I'm grateful for. And the big thing I've realized this year is how grateful I am for connections, for relationships, and I have two different sets of relationships that I've been particularly grateful for this year. My general sense of community until this year, you know, it was, you know, it's been my work. It's been going out with the DC Translates. It's been going out to these meetup type events, but those haven't been happening this year. And I, so I've gone community this year from two, you know, one is the same and one is new. And the big one is my wife with Giselle. And we have just loved being home together has been such a blessing. We've had so much time. We've really gone to deepen our relationship, be more thankful for each other than ever. It has been so incredibly fun, incredibly fun. We're like, this is the best year of our lives. And I feel like a little bit like selfish and greedy for saying that because we're so incredibly happy. We've had this gift of time and just so, so grateful. The other thing I've been grateful for is this year I found a group of women who ride their bikes in the DC metro area during the day on weekdays. And uh, so I have a sense of community and it's called the babes on bikes. And I, so I have the sense of community on my bicycle that I've been searching for in the DC metro area since I moved here a decade ago. And I have found that this past year, these women, I've been riding with these women nearly every single week since January. You know, because we've been able to socially distance, we've been able to wear masks when we stop, we can pee outside, you know, whatever we need to do to obey the rules of social distancing and masking and not getting dirty in bathrooms, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, we do it. And we have a blast riding our bikes together. And so I'm so grateful for that group of women. Uh, with that, I've been leading bike rides outdoors. I've been designing routes. I learned routing software, all these types of things that I never have had time for. And so I guess that's the third thing I'm grateful for is the gift of time that I've had this year. So that, that's enough. That's enough. I feel like I should say back to you, Cass. Take it away from me. That's beautiful. Cheers to, to Beth. Thank you so much. And I'm so happy that you have this beautiful year with your wife and you've had this beautiful new group of friends. It's, it's all about our relationships, right? It's all about the relationships. Congratulations, Beth. Thank you. And so... Can I ask a quick question? Yeah. Um, somewhat related. Um, what's the difference in a a glass, a red wine glass and a white wine glass? Ah, so the question is, what is the difference between a red wine glass and a white wine glass? Uh, so there, you can say, well, what is the difference or what difference should there be? And so I will tell you, and I think you maybe mean what difference should there be versus what difference is there. Um, so I will tell you that a Pinot Noir glass is a little bit different, but it can also be used for Chardonnay. And, because, and so this is a little bit wider than a typical glass. And so it's a little bit rounder. And that's because uh, it has to do with the delicacy of uh, Pinot Noir. Uh, but I will tell you that for my white wine, I use a basic Cabernet Sauvignon red wine style glass. And I can grab that if you want to kind of show you the difference between the two. 
Syrah glasses are a little bit bigger, but it's basically the same red wine, Cabernet glass. The white wine glass is a little bit smaller um, than a white wine glass, but it has the same general shape. And I have not found a point for me to buy white wine glasses separate from my Cabernet style glasses. Uh, what the hell is this I got? <laughs> that is a multi-purpose red wine glass that I would also use for white wine. Because I have found no benefit in my tasting of wines of having a white wine specific glass. That is I found this at Bed Bath & Beyond. They had red and they had white wine glasses. And this oh. was labeled as a white wine. Yeah, that one. <laughs> the one on your left. <laughs> this one is labeled as a multi-purpose red wine glass. It's got the traditional shape of a Cabernet Sauvignon style glass. The one that has my wine in it is the typical shape of a Burgundy or Pinot Noir style glass. Uh, for um, Chardonnay, it's labeled as a Montrachet style glass, which is a specific uh, Chardonnay from Burgundy. Uh, but I find that I can have all, all white wines other than dessert wines or sparkling wines very well from here. I have Pinot Noirs from here. And if I actually had a Montrachet, I would probably pour it in here because it would be fun, not because it would necessarily change things. For a champagne, uh, champagnes or sparkling wines are a little bit different. So there's two different style of glass. It, and, well, there's at least three actually. One is just silly, uh, uh, but there's at least two or three different styles of champagne glasses. One is the flute. The flute I think is what we're probably most familiar with today. So it's a skinnier glass like this, but very skinny. And Giselle is very sweet and bringing me these. So she's just off screen, just like Susan's wife. Uh, <laughs> a little bit of a combination sort of champagne flute. Do we have a skinnier champagne flute for me to show too, sweetie pie? Um, so this one, so this is a, oh, this is my Somalia level one. This is like a hundred dollar glass right here. Uh, so I'm like, don't mess this one up. Don't mess this. One. I just brought it out of the, like the box for the first time in a decade because I was so scared of messing these glasses up. So this is a really, really big one. Uh, but the idea with the champagne flute is that it's tall and skinny so you can see the bubbles come up. Uh, so this is my more standard one that I use every day right here. I know they look about the same one. It's just bigger. Uh, this, this one holds more of a standard glass of champagne or a glass and a half. This one, you only fill it up halfway. Um, so with it, the champagne glass is vertical so we can see the bubbles because champagne is about the show. If you can't see the bubbles or all the bubbles come out of solution right away, you are missing the show of champagne. So this is to see the bubbles rise in the glass. A lot of champagne flutes will actually have a little etch in the bottom and that etch is like a nucleation site so the bubbles can come out of that site. So you see them streaming up. The newer trend in champagne flutes or newer in the past decade is to have more of a, what they call a tulip style. And this one here starts to go a little bit into the tulip style, but it tends to be a little bit wider. It's not as big as one like this. So it splits the difference between a glass like this and a glass here, because they say that champagne is actually like any other white wine where it should breathe and be open. But they still wanna capture the bubbles coming up. Uh, for me, the bubbles are the most important part of champagne. And I love like the traditional flute style. So that's what I'm sticking with. Um, for this style, it's too big. The bubbles come out of solution too quickly. I don't get to enjoy them enough. And the, the aromas of champagne don't, uh, uh, it's not enough payoff for me compared to seeing the bubbles. Uh, the other style of champagne glasses is the old style. And you'll get a hoot out of this one because they're shaped like a woman's breast. It's the cup style that we see back in the 1920s. And that one is really about the sensuality of champagne because champagne is a sensual, exotic beverage and a woman's breast is sensual and exotic. 
Sorry if that's too explicit for our showcast, but that's just the shape of the glass. And that's why it's shaped that way. It does not concentrate the flavors of the wine, nor does it show off the bubbles, it, but it is evocative. No, is it, I love everything that you're saying. I have a girlfriend who just moved back to Germany last week. And so before she left, we were doing lunch together once a week, you know, for her goodbye. And we got into a, a rhythm where we were doing champagne every time we had lunch. And we were, it was, we were legitimately bummed whenever we would order champagne and they would, we often half the time had it delivered in a wine glass. And we would ask, don't you have a champagne flute? Like we're ordering it for celebration um, because all the bubbles would be gone. And I never knew until like these last few lunches that the shape of the glass affected the bubbles that much, but it was a total bummer to order champagne and have no bubbles. Yes. Do you mind if I talk for just a sec how to keep the bubbles in your champagne a little bit better or your sparkling wine? Because there are a couple of tricks. One is when you open the bottle. So when you open the bottle of champagne, you should have like a dish towel or a wine service towel, if you want to get a fancy term, a cloth napkin, something. You should have your thumb over the cork. There are six turns to the metal thing. And you're having your thumb here so the cork doesn't get blown away. If it gets blown away, you lose a bunch of bubbles. Plus, it's dangerous because you can hurt someone's eye. Then you'll very carefully underneath the towel ratchet up that cork. And so you have as little um, CO2 escape as possible. You have it at a slight angle so you don't lose any bubbles. And then when you pour your wine, this is not the sommelier way, this is the bartender way. The sommelier way to me loses too many bubbles. The sommelier way, you'll pour it up a third, wait for the bubbles to come down, pour it up another third, wait for the bubbles to come down, pour it up another third. A bartender's way is way more efficient keeping your bubbles. You're going to have it like this in a very slow pour and you're gradually going to open the, have the glass come up like this and it's just going to be perfect and the bubbles are going to last for so long and the pour is way faster because that's what bartenders do is they go fast. All right, so thank you for letting me talk about pouring champagne. No, I love it. And I love how that's also how I pour a beer. Yes, yes, it is just like pouring a beer. All right, so we have more wines that people had that we haven't talked about yet. Uh, Renee, you had, a, I think, maybe two wines there, if I remember right. I don't remember for sure. Uh, you're still on mute, if you want to unmute and then tell us about what you had, what you tasted, what you've experienced. I have the um, Samuel Robert um, Pinot. And that was from the Willamette Valley. I'm sorry. And then when it was from the Willamette Valley, if I remember right. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I'm used to California Pinots, which tend to be more earthy and full bodied. This is really light and fruity. Mm -hmm. So it was really kind of surprising. It's good. It's very refreshing. Uh, and so what area of California do you normally get your pinos from? Are you like a Napa Valley or Russian River Valley? Or do you have a specific area? Carmel or oh. Napa. Okay, so Carmel, like Carmel Valley? Mm-hmm. What producer? Because um, I think Sima Kalina made Pinot Noir down there, but they're mostly Bordeaux-style producers down there when I lived in oh. Carmel. Um, Oh, maybe it's Monterey. Uh, I, it's one called Carmel Wineries. Oh, yeah, Carmel Road. Yeah, I, I like their Pinot. Okay, so they might source from Santa Lucia Highlands, but they might do Arroyo Seco. It could be Carmel Valley, but Carmel Valley is more Bordeaux. Hmm. 
Interesting, interesting. I'm just trying to picture like what your like actual like growing region was, and it could be overall. But oh, I jump around. I know which kind of style of Pinot Noir you're talking about. This is actually really common in Monterey County. In Monterey County, the stuff that was labeled Monterey County and wasn't from Santa Lucia Highlands or Arroyo Seco or specialized region was often done in a really extracted style, uh, a higher alcohol percentage, um, and a lot of tannin that they pulled out to make it almost Syrah style. It's mm -hmm. a really unusual kind of thing. And I, maybe that is the kind of Pinot Noir that you're, you become accustomed to from the Monterey fruit. Right, yeah. And if that's the case, that would make sense why Pinot Noir uh, seems lighter and fruitier because that is the most extracted Pinot Noir I've ever tasted is the Monterey County style in that of those particular producers. So that's interesting. So if you like the Monterey County style that you described there, you may also enjoy Syrahs. Yeah, I've never really drank Syrahs. Uh, there's a lot of delicious Syrahs out there. There's a cool climate and there's warm climate. Uh, so you, you can experiment. Uh, so Syrah, there's a lot of Syrah based wines that are blended with other things from the Rhone Valley uh, in France. Uh, Syrah otherwise, uh, there's bits and pieces like all over the place. I'd have to think about it more to get you more specific details. I remember there's some Syrahs out of Monterey County as well. Hmm. It's not as popular of a varietal, say Pinot Noir or a Cab. No, it's very good. All right, cool, cool. And so tell us also what you're grateful for, Renee. Um, like everyone, I'm very grateful for being welcomed into this group. Um, being from the West Coast, Los Angeles, where there's absolutely no organized community for the trans uh, community, there's nothing. And so to be now here and to be welcomed into this, and um, it's very nice and I really appreciate it. And it's actually made uh, going through the pandemic very, uh, very doable. So I really appreciate everything that Cassandra has done and everybody, Lindsay, yourself. Thank you. Renee, thank you. I'm not sure if we've met in person, although no. I've back in Atlanta. Yes, no? No, we haven't. But I think you were literally like the third club founder of My Feminine Heart. You were one of the first ones. I, how did you find us? I don't even remember. I just stumbled on it and just wanting to find some sort of community. And um, I liked the first few um, uh, podcasts you did. So I thought of becoming um, a patron too and helping out because I liked what you were doing. Renee, thank you. You're a treasure. Well, thank, so you. thank you, Renee, for sharing. We appreciate that. Yeah. Well, thank you. Look thank forward you for to meeting you in here. person one day too. That would be what lovely. So the next time we're all in Atlanta, we're getting together with Renee. Yes. Oh, of course. Party, party. I also come up to the DC area a lot when we can travel. My daughter lives up there. That would be wonderful. Then we're all doing brunch at Freddy's with champagne in champagne glasses with Beth. All right. All right. <laughs> Thank All you. right. Uh, so I think we also have Donna to hear from, and you had, you know, a, one or two wines uh, tonight that you opened, right, Donna? 
you want to tell us about um, what you opened and what you experienced? Uh, well, I opened them both. I have a Pike, Pike Road Pinot Noir. It's a red wine. And I also have a, <clears throat> a dry Riesling. Now, I'm partial to Rieslings because I spent many years in Germany. And we used to jump on and jump in my $50 car and uh, a Volkswagen bug and drive along the Rhine River trying all the different wine, you know, wine fests. Also, I, what you said, Rieslings are better with pork and stuff like that. I mean, schnitzels are, ugh, right? And, uh, but I'm not really a Pinot Noir drinker, but I'm learning, and, you know, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, being stuck in the middle of nowhere, which Aylet, Virginia is, right? The convenience store is five miles away. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it gives, makes me insightful makes me do more research and things. Uh, and I'm retired twice. I'm a life coach now, also a wedding officiant in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And I'm just enjoying it. And I'm very thankful, uh, multi-levels. I'm thankful every day when I wake up, right? I'm thankful for my puppies, my fur babies. They kept me on an even keel. I, you know, I have 65 DURs right now. Uh, I'm thankful for the community, right? They were my cushion when my wife left me. And, uh, and my wife told me, you know, told me to get out of the house. I said, no. So she left and I'm almost divorced. And I met this wonderful young lady from New Zealand, Romy Sargon. And we're engaged and uh, we can't go between New Zealand and here, but uh, when she gets here and I, I wanted to take her to first event or Keystone, but in next Halloween, there's gonna be a wonderful cruise, more for cross-dressers, but we'll, can, we can fit right in, right? It's an eight day cruise. So yeah, that's why I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the community for support, and I'm thankful for you know people. You, Beth, uh, you I met you. You were one of the first ones. You helped me. You've seen me transition more or less. You gave me my first makeover, and a couple others. And Romy wants to meet you. Now, Cass, Sandra, Miss Cassandra, I have not ever had the pleasure of working with you. I look forward to that with bated breath. And, uh, but that will come in time, God willing. But yeah, it's like Kimberly, I know Kimberly, I know Miss Erica. And uh, yeah, it, it's, you know, mid insane nights at Freddy's. Uh, so it's a, I'm having a pleasurable journey. So far, I don't want Medicare. 
So I'm going to get my SRS paid for by Vernacure. Right. So that's my my end goal. Cheers Thank to you. Donna. Congratulations, Donna, on pursuing your best life. Oh. Come visit us at our Cheers, Donna. Congratulations. Cheers. We are so happy to have you with us. Thank you for joining us, Donna. I hope I didn't talk. I hope I didn't talk too much. Not at all. That's perfect. We're so excited for you. And that cruise sounds so fun after this year. All right. So, and going back to Oregon wines, um, that's all I've got in terms of my formal presentation, in terms of like the wine that I'm tasting. Uh, and I welcome any other questions that you all have, either about like the wines themselves, places to visit that have really exceptional experiences when it comes to wineries, you know, accommodations and um, et cetera. So, you know, any other questions that you've got for me? I have one question that I hope doesn't bring up bad memories, but stop me if it does. Um, you were doing some like wine and cheese things several years ago. Mm -hmm. And we went to one someplace in DC. That's all I remember about it. Um, at any rate, you had you had a wine. Forget what it was. Are you talking about the one that was bad that I sent back? Yes. It was a Syrah from Washington State. So Washington State makes absolutely incredible wines, and but they distribute not very good wines, uh, is what I found. Um, my memory, anyway, was a discussion about whether it was cured in wine in oak barrels or oak chips. Ah, yes. That ring a bell? <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And describe, and, and describe the difference is where I'm going. Uh, oh, okay. Okay. So it's not about like that, that particular tasting experience and how bad yeah, it was. No, it's just the only one I remember about oak. <laughs> uh, so, so the question is really, um, what are the ways to impart an oak flavor into a wine and kind of like, what are the benefits? So like the gold standard in terms of oak, particularly with American style, is oak barrels. So you get both the flavors of oak and you get the oxidation benefits. You get the air exchange through oak out to the environment. So you got a little bit of oxygen interacting with your wine. Uh, so those are barrels, you know, they're about this big around and about this tall kind of thing. There's also oak casks and they're really, really big. I saw these in Spain, like, you know, four human beings tall and like three human beings wide type thing. And they tend to be used, and they might call them oak bats, oak camps. It's just huge, huge type things. And again, getting some of that oxygen exchange, very minor amounts of uh, oak uh, flavoring, like any of the baking spices. Um, now, the baking spices are from having oak and having um, the oak interact with the wine, that cinnamon, the cloves, the nutmeg, um, and... Um, sometimes people try to get these types of flavors in cheaper ways. And one of the cheaper ways is oak staves. So you'll take, let's say you have a barrel. Uh, the barrels cost uh, several years, a decade or 15 years ago, they cost like $1,000 new. And you might sell an old one for like $50 or something like that. You get one of these old $50 barrels and you cut it up into staves. 
So like you have the little pieces from it, you put your stave into your wine, you're like, oh, I got some oak flavoring I'm imparting. Well, not, not very much, right? Or you can get even cheaper. And let me figure out how to turn off these. Uh, so I've got my phone off, but I'm getting text messages in on the computer and I need to figure out how to get. I checked my phone, it wasn't me. <laughs> so I just quit the messenger app on the computer. Hopefully that gets rid of it and it doesn't pop back up. I'm sorry about that. Um, so the cheaper version is oak chips. So oak chips, you have little tiny pieces of oak and you toast them and you put them in like a basket kind of thing, or you have them floating around in the wine uh, so that it interacts with the wine to create an oak flavor. You get none of the oxidation benefits of oak, but you get some oak flavoring. Uh, and so I was using an insult basically about that particular wine to say it had been flavored with oak chips rather than oak barrels. Um, the, the very most uh, drastic step of trying to create fake oak flavor is adding drops of flavoring. So adding vanilla, adding baking spices by chemistry. Uh, and so if I had really wanted to insult, I would have uh, used uh, something to <laughs> insinuate that. Oh, so you were holding back is what you're telling me a little bit. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and then in oak barrels, there's like new oak barrels that where you're running to part of a lot of vanilla, a lot of baking spice, and there's used oak barrels, and they're different winemaking styles. Uh, so like Bordeaux is really known for you for brand new oak barrels, uh, where other producers they might want more of a Burgundian effect and use used oak barrels. So it's really dependent a lot on the region what is more common and the uh, style preference they're going for. Does wow. that answer your question, Erica? Yes, it does. <laughs> That's all. Thank you. <laughs> Ladies, I want to thank you all so much for um, participating with us tonight. I know that we could keep Beth on here for forever, but we are we are almost closing in on two hours. Um, and as you all know, I'm an, I'm an early bedtime gal. So uh, I'd like to raise a glass to our sommelier, Beth. Thank you so much much for everything that you taught us tonight. I can tell you that I'm literally going to replay this tomorrow so that I can continue to absorb all the information that you shared because I, I was just overwhelmed. I'm so honored for the time that you took to prepare for this. You are a true treasure and we love having you as part of our My Feminine Heart family. Cheers to Beth and cheers to all of you ladies. Thank you so much. All right, my pleasure, Cass. And just let me know what my homework items are. I have to get you the, the, the title of the Wine Atlas by Hugh Johnson and put that in some notes somewhere. And I, I put that in the comments. I'll try to remember that in the newsletter that we send out. And just let me know if there are any other like homework questions that I missed. Yes, ladies, please feel free to send any questions that you have. I'm, you know, One of the things, Beth has been the most incredible person in her comments in our Facebook lives on responding to everybody. Um, and we definitely want to have you back. Anybody else up for another wine vacation in 2021? Yeah. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, of course. Hell yeah. We love it. I love, I love wine vacations. This is fantastic. Let's do it again, Beth. In All right. So I'll, I'll talk with Cass and I'll propose some stuff out on the My Feminine Heart uh, Facebook club group page. Uh, so we can uh, vote on some options. That sounds perfect. And I did see a comment tonight with somebody asking for the link to be a part of this. If you want to be a part of what we're doing, join our club membership, which will be reopening 
February 2021. And if you want information, send me an email, info at CassandraStorm.com. These incredible, beautiful women um, are all here to support each other in this beautiful sisterhood that we have going. And it's it's honestly, it's like, it's like Erica said, I think I'd have gone crazy this year if it hadn't been for this group of ladies. So thank you all so very much for your support. Thank you to Beth. Stay tuned next week. We are hitting a stress-free episode. Tonight was the gratitude episode. Next week, we are talking about ways to de-stress after the crazy Thanksgivings that were happening. So I, I know many of you probably aren't able to gather with the people that you wanna gather with. And you may be gathering with people who cause you stress, I wish you well. I wish you lots of love and health and happiness for Thanksgiving. And I look forward to seeing you next week for Trans Tuesday. Thank you and good night, everybody. Love you all. Good night. Good night, everybody. Girls. Okay, night. Have a great Thanksgiving. Good night, Robin. Never miss a single podcast by signing up for our newsletter at myfeminineheart.com. So yeah, that's why I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the community, for support, and I'm thankful for you know people. You, Beth, uh, you, I met you. You were one of the first ones. You helped me. You've seen me transition more or less. You gave me my first makeover, and a couple others. And Romy wants to meet you. Now, Cass, Sandra, Miss Cassandra, I have not ever had the pleasure of working with you. I look forward to that with bated breath. And, uh, but that will come in time, God willing. But yeah, it's like Kimberly, I know Kimberly, I know Miss Erica. And uh, yeah, it, it's, you know, Mid insane nights at Freddy's. Uh, so it's a I'm having a pleasurable journey so far. I don't want Medicare, so I'm gonna get my SRS paid for by the Medicare. Right. So that's my my end goal. Cheers Thank to you. Donna. Congratulations, Donna, on pursuing your best life. Come visit us at our Christmas Congratulations. Cheers. We are so happy to have you with us. Thank you for joining us, Donna. I hope I didn't talk. I hope I didn't talk too much. Not at all. That's perfect. We're so excited for you. And that cruise sounds so fun after this year. All right, so and going back to Oregon wines, uh, that's all I've got in terms of my formal presentation, in terms of like the wine that I'm tasting. Uh, and I welcome any other questions that you all have, either about like the wines themselves, places to visit that have really exceptional experiences when it comes to wineries, you know, accommodations and um, et cetera. So, you know, any other questions that you've got for me? I have one question that I hope it doesn't bring up bad memories, but stop me if it does. Um, you were doing some like wine and cheese things several years ago. Mm -hmm. 
and we went to one someplace in DC. That's all I remember about it. Um, at any rate, you had you had a wine. Forget what it was. Are you talking about the one that was bad that I sent back? Yes. Yeah, it was a Syrah from Washington State. So Washington State makes absolutely incredible wines, and but they distribute not very good wines, uh, is what I found. Um, my memory, anyway, was a discussion about whether it was cured in wine in oak barrels or oak chips. Ah, yes. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And describe, and, and describe the difference is where I'm going. Uh, oh, okay. Okay. So it's not about like that, that particular tasting experience and how bad yeah, that was. No, that's just the only one I remember about oak. <laughs> uh, so, so the question is really, um, what are the ways to get, impart an oak flavor into a wine and kind of like, what are the benefits? So like the gold standard in terms of oak, particularly with American style is oak barrels. So you get both the flavors of oak and you get the oxidation benefits. You get the air exchange through oak out to the environment. So you got a little bit of oxygen interacting with your wine. Uh, so those are barrels, you know, they're about this big around and about this tall kind of thing. There's also oak casks and they're really, really big. I saw these in Spain, like, you know, four human beings tall and like three human beings wide type thing. And they tend to be used, and they might call them oak bats, oak camps, just huge, huge type things. And again, getting some of that oxygen exchange, very minor amounts of uh, oak uh, flavoring, like any of the baking spices. Um, now, the baking spices are from having oak and having um, the oak interact with the wine, that cinnamon, the cloves, the nutmeg, um, and um sometimes people try to get these types of flavors in cheaper ways and one of the cheaper ways is oak staves so you'll take let's say you have a barrel uh the barrels cost uh, several years a decade or 15 years ago they cost like a thousand dollars new and you might sell an old one for like fifty dollars or something like that. you get one of these old fifty dollar barrels and you cut it up into staves so like you have the little pieces from it, you put your stave into your wine and you're like oh i got some oak flavoring i'm imparting well, not, not very much, right? Or you can get even cheaper. And let me figure out how to turn off these. Uh, so I've got my phone off, but I'm getting text messages in on the computer and I need to figure out how to get. I checked my phone it wasn't me. <laughs> so I just quit the messenger app on the computer. Hopefully that gets rid of it and it doesn't pop back up. I'm sorry about that. Um, so the cheaper version is oak chips. So oak chips, you have little tiny pieces of oak and you toast them and you put them in like a basket kind of thing, or you have them floating around in the wine uh, so that it interacts with the wine to create an oak flavor. You get none of the oxidation benefits of oak, but you get some oak flavoring. Uh, and so I was using an insult basically about that particular wine to say it had been flavored with oak chips rather than oak barrels. Um, the, the very most uh, drastic step of trying to create fake oak flavor is adding drops of flavoring. So adding vanilla, adding baking spices by chemistry. Uh, and so if I had really wanted to insult, I would have uh, used uh, something to <laughs> insinuate that. Oh, so you were holding back is what you're telling me a little bit. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and then oak barrels. There's like new oak barrels that where you're running to part of a lot of vanilla, a lot of baking spice, and then there's used oak barrels, and they're different wine making styles. Uh, so like Bordeaux is really known for you for brand new oak barrels, uh, where other producers they might want more of a Burgundian effect and use used oak barrels. So it's really dependent a lot on the region what is more common and the uh, style of preference they're going for. Wow. Does that answer your question, Erica? Yes, it does. <laughs> That's all. Thank you. <laughs> Ladies, I want to thank you all so much for um, participating with us tonight. I know that we could keep Beth on here for forever, but we are we are almost closing in on two hours. Um, and as you all know, I'm an I'm an early bedtime gal, so. Uh, I'd like to raise a glass to our sommelier, Beth. Thank you so much for everything that you taught us tonight. I can tell you that I'm literally going to replay this tomorrow so that I can continue to absorb all the information that you shared because I, I, I was just overwhelmed. I'm so honored for the time that you took to prepare for this. You are a true treasure and we love having you as part of our My Feminine Heart family. Cheers to Beth and cheers to all of you ladies. Thank you so much. All right, my pleasure, Cass. And just let me know what my homework items are. I have to get you the, the, the title of the Wine Atlas by Hugh Johnson and put that in some notes somewhere. And I, I put that in the comments. I'll try to remember that in the newsletter that we send out. And just let me know if there are any other like homework questions that I missed. Yes, ladies, please feel free to send any questions that you have. I, you know, one of the things Beth has been the most incredible person in her comments in our Facebook lives on responding to everybody. Um, and we definitely want to have you back. Anybody else up for another wine vacation in 2021? Yeah. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, of course. Hell yeah. We love it. I love, I love wine vacations. This is fantastic. Let's do it again, Beth. In All right. Uh, I'll talk with Cass and I'll propose some stuff out on the My Feminine Heart uh, Facebook Club group page uh, so we can uh, vote on some options. That sounds perfect. And I did see a comment tonight with somebody asking for the link to be a part of this. If you want to be a part of what we're doing, join our club membership, which will be reopening February 2021. And if you want information, send me an email, info at CassandraStorm.com. These incredible, beautiful women um, are all here to support each other in this beautiful sisterhood that we have going. And it's, it's honestly, it's like, it's like Erica said, I think I'd have gone crazy this year if it hadn't been for this group of ladies. So thank you all so very much for your support. Thank you to Beth. Stay tuned next week. We are hitting a stress-free episode. Tonight was the gratitude episode. Next week, we are talking about ways to de-stress after the crazy Thanksgivings that were happening. So I I know many of you probably aren't able to gather with the people that you want to gather with. And you may be gathering with people who cause you stress. I wish you well. I wish you lots of love and health and happiness for Thanksgiving. And I look forward to seeing you next week for Trans Tuesday. Thank you and good night, everybody. Love you all. Good night. Good night, everybody. Okay, night. Have a great Thanksgiving. All right, bye. Guten Abend. Never miss a single podcast by signing up for our newsletter at myfeminineheart.com.